me already being a comparative mythology nut and studying this stuff, as well as a lot of famous um, IPs that first introduced me um, into my love for SFF, like Star Wars, which later on I learned happened to follow pretty closely the idea of the hero's journey. Um, and in studying mythology, it was inevitable that I'd come across Joseph Campbell and his work. So the older I got, the access to the internet. And it was about college years um, where I really came into it. And I've already been studying mythology to see the backwards connection of, oh, I already knew these myths and I knew that they were sort of similar. Now I'm seeing sort of a resonance of what he did to take that and codify it into the system of like this quest for individuality and individualism and then the societal like pressures on a hero and what the hero's journey eventually became. Um, and I also developed a problem, which is not a criticism with it very early on, in that I realized because the mythological background that I had cultivated and loved, as well as stuff that he admitted himself, that it's it's also a reduction, a codification system of larger storytelling beats and structures to sort of make the hero's journey. Um, and that it was derived from the psychological studies of Carl Jung, um, who sort of also had this idea of like the quest for individualism, your 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 spiritual quest um, to develop you as a person. And it's a system built off a system built off a history of myths and stories. What is up, everybody? You're listening to episode 62 of SFF Addicts. I'm your host, Adrian M. Gibson, and welcome to your weekly dive into the world of science fiction, fantasy, and writing craft. Joining me, as always, is my co-host, the Chewy to my Han Solo, the Joker to my Commander Shepard, my dear MJ Kuhn. How are you, MJ? I am great. How are you? Doing very well. And if anyone would like to support MJ, you can go pick up a copy of Among Thieves. If you like hatchets and people cutting shit up, this one is for you. <laughs> there's heists, there's found family. It is a brilliant story, very fast paced, and you are going to love it. And the second book in this duology, because you know it's going to be finished, Thick as Thieves <laughs> is coming out on July 25th, so go get a pre-order now. As well, a quick note for anyone out there listening or watching the official SFF Addicts Patreon and merch store are live, so check the links in the description to support what we do here. Also, don't forget to rate and review the podcast on your favorite podcast app. And subscribe to the Fanfiatic YouTube channel, where this and every other episode of the show is available in full video. And now, joining us once again is the illustrious R.R. Verdi, author of The First Binding, Grave Beginnings, and more. Welcome back, Ronnie. How's it going? Oh, thank you guys for having me so much. Uh, the last time we did this was fucking fantastic, so uh, this is a treat being back. Even though we did it all on the same night, because that's the <laughs> yeah, magic yeah. editing. <laughs> I didn't know. Give away the trick, Adrian. <laughs> okay, I didn't know Breaking if I was going to play with that ball. or not. I don't give a I shit. I liked the acting, though. It was fantastic. <laughs> I know, right? All those years of theater just came See, super See, it paid handy. off. Oh. I love it. Yeah. Ronnie set it up, and I just destroyed it. You just were like, volleyball spike, bitch. <laughs> it's fine. Fuck this. It's fine. So, a heads up. This is part two of our two-part chat with Ronnie. So, I recommend checking out part one to get to know him better. Today, though, we're going on a journey, specifically a mini masterclass on the hero's heroine's journey. Uh, and this is a pretty fucking dense topic. So, to start off, Ronnie, can you tell us how you first encountered the monomyth, the hero's journey? Absolutely. So um, in the previous talk, we talked about obviously my, me being a craft whore, um, <laughs> me already being a comparative mythology nut and studying this stuff, as well as a lot of famous um, IPs that first introduced me um, into my love for SFF, like Star Wars, which later on I learned happened to follow pretty closely the idea of the hero's journey. 
um, and in studying mythology, it was inevitable that I come across Joseph Campbell and his works. Uh, the older I got, the access to the internet, and uh, it was about college years um, where I really came into it, and I've already been studying mythology to see the backwards connection of oh, I already knew these myths, and I knew that they were sort of similar. Now I'm seeing sort of a resonance of what he did to take that and codify it into the system of like this quest for individuality and individualism, and then the societal like pressures on a hero and what the hero's journey eventually became. Um, and I also developed a problem, which is not a criticism with it very early on, in that I realized because the mythological background that I had cultivated and loved, as well as stuff that he admitted himself, that it's it's also a reduction, a codification system of larger storytelling beats and structures to sort of make the hero's journey. Um, and that it was derived from the psychological studies of Carl Jung, um, who sort of also had this idea of like the quest for individualism, your 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 spiritual quest um, to develop you as a person. And it's a system built off a system built off a history of myths and stories. Uh, but it was about college when I really, um, really, I guess, came into the the academic part of it and was able to start looking at the history of it to see how it tied in the mythological love that I have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to dive a little bit deeper into that because. Um you know, the power of myth, right? It's such a, it's such a powerful topic and it's so closely tied to a lot of storytelling. And I'm curious your thoughts about why human beings attach themselves so strongly to this type of narrative. Like it has shown up time and time again throughout history. Um, you know, how, how is that, how can we take that history and make it uh, relatable in a framework for a modern story? Like what, what's your take on that? Uh, well, depending on how you want to break it down, it really is the the individual heroic quest. And now it's become literally the idea of like a quest. But originally it was the heroic act was finding you. It was you going on the quest to create yourself with the early inception of the hero's journey. Um, I don't know if we're going to have time where I should go into the whole mythological aspects of the things that led to the idea of the hero's journey, because that's a lot of comparative mythology. Um, part of it stems from the idea of heroism as we as a species were taught. Okay, I'm going to do this anyways. Oops. Um, uh, so, so first of it is like the, the idea of heroes that we as a species worshipped. And this goes back to some of the oldest stories like the Enuma Elish, which is probably the oldest epic that we still have access to. It's uh, Babylonian. And um, it's a story, uh, you know, where Gilgamesh comes from, but also the idea of the storm god Marduk. Um, and the earliest gods in the world were storm warrior and agricultural rain gods. Uh, the Proto-Indo-Europeans also worshipped them, and their god took over the world. And we'll get into that later, which then leads to the hero's journey. Um, but Marduk is, uh, kills Tiamat, who is a primordial goddess, a dragon goddess of chaos. Uh, and he cleaves her in two. And we have this history of storm gods being the ones who save humanity. And, and uh, you know, they, they oversee us, and they're aspirational. Uh, those are the guys you want to be, that you worship. They're a sense of power and identity. Um, and then we have the story of Vitra and Indra. Uh, where Vitra is also an oceanic sea serpent sort of dragon demon that holds all the waters of the world uh, hostage. And at the time, that's what most of these chaos dragons did. They would take water. When you're a proto-agricultural civilization, water is the most important source. So a dragon takes that. And Vitra is usually called the first dragon and the obstacle, right? So this comes back to storytelling and the idea. And of the, the dragon does later. also come back into Carl Jung and, and like, absolutely psychology. Um, yeah. And Vitra also, and Indra is also a storm god who interestingly has a, a proto hammer, a war club that had all the powers of a thunderbolt in it. And he smites Vitra with this. And he became known as uh, Vitrayan, which is like uh, the slayer of Vitra, killer of the first dragon. 
And at the same time, there's the myth of Thor who kills Jormungandr with a hammer yeah. imbued with all the powers of a lightning bolt. Which then there's also the, is it the Hadidic god? Um, I forget what it is. It's the story of Lotan, which I actually did a massive like Twitter thread on. And I actually think I have access to somewhere because this is horrible, stupid sh- stuff that I do all the time. But um, just Google it because I, I just spoke out the myth, but I know that Lotan... <laughs> uh, yeah, so Lotan is um, the coiled sea serpent, uh, the dragon um, of the sea god Yam, and he's defeated by the storm god uh, Baal. Uh, it's the exact same story. Usually it's a storm god uh, killing this, and we think it comes out of the Proto-Indo-European storm god Deus Pitar, which literally means sky father. And linguistically, Pitar shows up in Sanskrit. It shows up later in uh, Greek because Zeus's original name was Deus Pitar. So you're starting to see the homophily between storm gods because Zeus kills Tython, a titan from the Titanomachy, who's also very serpent-like. And that pattern repeats with Apollo killing Python. Um, so the idea of like powerful sky deities killing um, dragons. And we'll bring this back now to the hero's journey really fast up. But one of the original ideas of the hero's journey is you have, you know, a certain structured climax where your hero, um, he approaches his innermost cave um, is what it's called. And he has this great ideal. And the ideal is usually tied to the greatest obstacle in facing this. And from the psychological aspect, this is where Carl Jung brings in the dragon. Because dragons historically have synonymously represented he, uh, humanity's greatest fears. They're a culmination of things like it's it's the body in, uh, of a serpent, the claws of a lion. It breeds fires. It is a very I mean, it even comes back into the Bible with, with the serpent in the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, mm-hmm. as well as Rahab. Um, there's two Rahabs in the Bible. There's one that's the whore of Babylon and another one that's actually a dragon. But I don't believe Rahab is how that one is pronounced. It's just a translation into English where it loses its pronunciation. But if you look it up, uh, Yahweh, God, actually smites that dragon. Um, and Christian Yahweh has a lot of analogs with a lot of previous storm deities. Um, we can get into that, and that might get offensive for people. So I, I know it's a touchy subject. Got to be careful with that one. But... Um, the idea of killing the dragon, which goes back to the first one I talked about, Vitra, whose name was the obstacle. Eventually, dragons became the obstacle in the story to to defeat, fighting your dragon, and sometimes quite literally. Um, one of the most famous stories that does this is um, uh, The Hobbit with Smog, who people might not realize The Hobbit is nearly beat for beat, a very interesting retelling of Beowulf, which Tolkien also famously uh, translated. Uh, Smog is directly analogous to Fafnir. Um, a dragon who is also killed uh, by Sigurd or Siegfried, a dragon slayer. And this is where we start cycling back, where humans, once we move from storm gods being our, our, our you know, saviors and the ones we worship, there's a time and place where the humans and demigods became the dragon slayers. It's not gods anymore. We start bringing them down and mythologizing us, uh, making us them. Um, Hercules kills, um, you know, the, the Hydra. Um, uh, I just brought up a, a Siegfried who kills the dragon uh, Fafnir and bathes in its blood to achieve impenetrability by bathing in dragon's blood. And this ties into another shared myth, which sometimes ties back into uh, the hero's journey, the quest for uh, impenetrability or invulnerability. So um, the hero's journey is usually the idea of all these shared stories that have similar beats, which even, even um, Campbell talked about. And they were codified over this time because so many people had this. He's like, oh, there is a heroic platform and trait of heroism that we we embody in our stories, we resonate with. But it comes from this reduction of all these shared myths. One of the most, uh, two of the most famous ones that are very similar are the Iliad and Mabarat. Um, the story of Garan and um, Achilles are almost very identical down to having the same kind of divine parent. In the original versions, which was the fact I shared interestingly um, in the last episode, Achilles in the original um, Iliad is not dipped in the river Styx, nor does he have invulnerability in his body. In fact, there are passages. Invulnerable yes. armor. 
Yes, he has invulnerable armor given to him by his mother at a request from Hephaestus, which is the exact same as Scutton. He has divine armor um, that makes him invulnerable, which is given to him by his like magical divine parent, his mother, Kunti. Um, both characters are sort of like, you know, uber warriors and like best killing machines, but they come from smaller kingdoms. So while they're somewhat royal, their ability in combat far exceeds their their mortal station. Um, they originally first sit out the war that they that they were eventually going to be part of until someone very close to them is hurt, killed, or kidnapped. Um, both characters lose their special armor in a very important way, and then they are you know killed because of losing that armor. In the original artwork, um, Greek artwork, Achilles is seen most often being shot through actually his side or his, his torso, not the the shot through the heel, um, which later became it. And Arjun um, shoots Gutton in the back um, after he like spares Arjun. So most most of them you have their impenetrability tested. Same with Sigurd, who I just said, the human dragon slayer. After he bathes in the dragon's blood, uh, is an oak or maple leaf sticks to the small of his back, which he doesn't realize. And he divulges his secret about his uh, one vulnerable spot to a woman, and he's later betrayed and killed through that spot. This idea keeps coming back, and again, like we'll use The Hobbit because it's a very famous story that follows the hero's journey very, very well. Um, Bilbo's reward for killing or being part of, you know, taking down Smog is he gets the suit of Mithril, yeah. which is supposed yeah. to be this impenetrable suit of armor. Yeah. Um, and also, we see a reversal of this where Smog, the impenetrable dragon, in fact, is penetrable. He has one weakness in his one armor. Weakness, yeah. exactly. um, the one scale. And interestingly enough, the one scale. <laughs> and interestingly enough, when uh, Fafnir is killed by Siegfried, he actually finds a suit of like scale mail dragon uh, golden armor. Um, that's not talked about too much in present day, but in the original uh, story, that's there. Uh, he finds like a treasure of armor and that's sort of brought back up in the hobbit and to bring this full circle that's essentially what the hero's journey is it's not i'm not using the actual beats of it but the history of where it comes from is the history of shared mythology that norse south asian or vedic babylonian greek eventually other cultures started telling certain stories because they we liked them they resonated with us and the idea of this the heroism and the dragon slayer is the most famous story to the point where we've made it our fundamental climax, the idea of having the climax an obstacle. Most storytelling would not be the same because if you go back to older stories, there's a history of um, the story called The Three Princes of Serendip, which is a Persian story about Sri Lanka. So it's set in Sri Lanka by the name they called it Serendip, and it's a story of serendipity, which is where the word comes from. And it's just an adventure story. There's no climax. It's three brothers having zany adventures. Storytelling traditionally has had very, very interesting different cultural takes. But then there's something about these heroic tales that interestingly start popping up at the same time in the world out of Proto-Indo-European cultures that just caught on. And everyone wanted their take on it and everyone started repeating it and telling it. And then it had a psychological effect because we're aspirational beings. We, we worship. We worship heroes. We have them today in our athletes. And the idea of individuality, our individuality being tested and a reason to like improve through suffering which nobody likes doing but if you could do this you can you know there's there's a call for guidance which we have in um the hero's journey is meeting the mentor everyone kind of likes the idea of, i wish someone could help me through this someone to understand this um and this is where the psychological needs come through and everyone understands like the idea of leaving home the call to adventure the want for an adventure um and these are also beats for that and crossing the threshold where you leave which um, a great example of this in Lord of the Rings is quite literally, and I'll use the film adaptations because they're easier to visualize for people, but where it's being talked about with Frodo, where he's like, that's it. If I take one more step, leaving the furthest I've ever been from home. Yeah. 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 It's right there. And yeah. then you have the whole tests and allies and enemies um, where the hero is going through his ideals, which obviously the Odyssey mm -hmm. does too. It's one of the, the proto, you know, pillars for all of this. Um, but this is kind of like your fun and adventure. The hero gets to go out there and, you know, see what they're made of, see who other people are made of. This is uh, fun and games parts with like um, 
when Luke Skywalker leaves Tatooine for the first time with the Millennium Falcon. And he's got Han and Chewie, and they're, you know, going through space and hurling around, having all their adventures being shot at and whatever. That's that's that. And then interestingly enough, the Death Star serves a similar function. It's it's a dragon, and quite literally, um, not just as an obstacle, but in terms of the mythological what dragons did. When I talked about earlier with agricultural societies, they held back water. After a while, they started stealing livestock. Once we grew and better in our agriculture, we valued our meat and our livestock. Dragons would take livestock. Eventually, they moved up to a lot more than that. They started stealing princesses because we as a society, when we had kingdoms, valued them and we valued right, gold. Yeah. Smog holds gold. What's on the Death Star? Princess Leia. Yeah. Quite literally, is holding a princess hostage and mm -hmm. the rebellion is at risk because of the power of the Death Star. It is quite literally serving the same function as a dragon in the mythological and fear sense. It is, it is all-encompassing. It is terribly destructive. Um, and the hero can only really confront himself and his his quest for identity by facing this because that's the titular moment to destroy the death star luke needs to take that first step in being a jedi and trusting the force that's the only way he can make the unthinkable shot he has exactly. that character and, realization moment and even the death star the even the death star has its weakness much like smile has, has the one has, moment of impenetrability exactly. yeah that myth has carried on throughout so many stories um it gets me into some arguments, but like I can point out, and I don't like to because it ruins some people's hearts and fandoms. But like <laughs> so much of '90s and even 2000s and even today, legendary fantasy, 90% of them backbone are built on the larger idea of the hero's journey, not the reduction that Michael, uh, that Joseph Campbell put out. Which again is not a criticism of it. It's just he built it off his larger body of mythology, picking the most popular aspects of and Jungian psychology of what drives this very specific formula and idea of what we love about fantasy. It was never supposed to be an outline how to write fantasy. You can use it that way, but it was a noted pattern that he was talking about, about what drives it. Why is this popular? Why do these stories resonate with us? It's like, oh, it's these themes and these myths that built that theme. Um, and it still exists today. Um, it's quite literally like what we talked about, what I am trying to write and reply conversation, maybe criticize and subvert with the first binding. It's all of those things. It's not one. I'm not just talking to point out some of its flaws. I am also writing and reply to it. I'm writing some love aspects to it. I'm trying to show the broader myths that make it up and do a lot so uh, yeah obviously it's something very close to Dude. my heart and go ahead please well in the case I of the first, in the case of the first binding i think it's really interesting because like i love what you were what you were saying about the evolution of storytelling traditions and the ways in which obviously storytelling as our species knew it for a very long time was orally absolutely orally traversed like from one generation to the next is basically like we are passing these stories on orally. But what that does is oral storytelling gives the storyteller the opportunity to embellish in a way that they want mm -hmm. and in a way that they perceive as um, better exemplifying their society. Absolutely. Their which audience. is why those stories change. Exactly, which is how those stories change. And so the way that they're able to morph over the course of uh, time and space is really fascinating. I love how you touch on that in the first binding because it's like there are so many stories within stories and stories that are uh, misinterpreted, stories oh, that absolutely. are purposefully twisted in order to convey a specific mm -hmm. narrative purpose. So I wanted to get your your take on like how you went about incorporating the hero's journey into the first binding and why that was something that you wanted to comment on in that story and why that 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 sort of uh, why why the monomyth and 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 the way in which stories 
transcend time and history was like a good um, pairing for the story and the world that you created in the first binding. I got to do this without spoilers, but I'm okay with some. Um, <laughs> Minor spoilers so, ahead. Yeah. Sort of it is obviously that I already <laughs> loved this, this, this stuff before I even got to write the first binding. Um, part of it was driven by as a you know South Asian guy. I have seen this happen and everyone's seen this happen to themselves or someone they know about in terms of high school. Let's, let's go there first. Um, our first seeing oral stories or rumors about other people and how fast they can change from person to person. It's unfortunate and it is destroying and how telephone truth can become. Yeah, exactly. Um, and growing up as a South Asian guy post 9-11, it was very interesting how quickly the color of my skin went from Apu jokes to your family did something very terrible. And um, the FBI came to my house once because my father, who I said it was a cab driver in D.C., was filling out his manifest, which before the meters uh, existed in D.C. had a zone cab system. You just write down your fare on a clipboard. And because D.C., one of the biggest forms of cab drivers making tons of money was museum fares. So he was outside of a museum just writing down notes, and an elderly lady thought he was taking plans to, I guess, blow up a building or something, because literally the next day the FBI was at our house complaining about this. But they were the, the actual agents were very reasonable about it, but it was so staggering to see that that's all it took because of the color of my dad's skin. Um, how quickly stories about people can be misjudged, misaligned, misunderstood, and rumor perpetuates a rumor, which becomes truth to whoever wants it to be that truth. So personal experiences as well, seeing this mythologically, like just the stories we talked about, how many cultures have certain dragon slayer and myths that are exactly the freaking same with minor tweaks. Um, I left out like half a dozen other impenetrable mythology stories about somebody with one weakness that I could rattle off. There's um, Soshana in the, the Caucasus myths of um, he's a god born to a forge god who's tempered in fire. And because the forge god holds him with these forges, um, the, these tongs, his knees are left untempered. And he is shot through the knee and killed, which is very similar to Balder, when his mother takes all the oaths from everything except mistletoe because it's too young to make an oath. And then Loki tricks, I believe, Tyr into throwing a blindfolded mistletoe dart at Balder, which is his one weakness, which kills him. And it's a huge thing to hear. And I'm like, wow, okay, nobody was really ripping each other off, but these came out of older stories. But exactly. someone must have been trading stories orally. Yep. They all pop up nearly around the same time. Um, but we know these countries aren't isolated. They traded stories. Um there's little logs of different cultures, like I talked about the Ibn Fadlan in the last podcast, of traders across the world traveling across the world and bringing stories. Mm -hmm. Stories were not locked trading up. Trading in stories. Um, they, were, they were absolutely trading in stories along the way. It's rumor milling and gossip. Like telephone back then was not limited just by like, oh, we don't have high speed. Like, I guess no one's going to hear about this. No, rumors still freaking spread. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> if money can spread and clothes can spread, human greed and avarice and interest will spread everything else, including stories. Um, so it seemed like a natural evolution for me to, to take all that and tackle this. And then within my own works, um, I've already posited that theory I talked about in, in the frame of the frame narrative where Elowen brings up the similarities of stories and how Ari relates to them. Um, it's brought up at the end by a foreign prince in a different place who's like, oh, I've seen this happen too. And then I do it with certain things. So there's chapter 10, which I talked about. This is a very poetic lyrical chapter, but it's also an origin myth. Um, and the, the story is those, it's called cosmogony. It's the, the idea of creation with creation um like so after nothingness and interestingly enough i was able to borrow from real mythology there where uh the the three earlier kind of proto-myths are south asian um greek and norse and in them they all interestingly bring it in very similar there's nothing in the universe um before existence there's nothing silence and stillness i shouldn't have actually said that it's fine. I don't need that edited. But like, <laughs> God, that might have been a spoiler. Um, but nothing exists. And there's the idea of chaos, but chaos is actually nothingness. It's the idea uh, in many ways. It's not like burbling explosions. It's just chaos is 
the universe's entropy and nothing, which is terrifying. And um, in the Greek, I believe it was the chasm. It was the primordial state of being before the universe was creation. In the Norse, it's called Genunga Gap. It's the gaping abyss. And in South Asian, it's the cosmic heat. Um, it was like this just temporal, hot universe waiting for something to happen. And it's the same in all three. And it was interesting when I wrote this, that was kind of the point. People were like, this is the the Christian uh, creation story. It's like there was nothing this, and the God showed up and like started making things. I was like, what do you think Christianity developed? This is like some of the oldest ones. It's very interesting to see because part of what made this book even better to me, which it's unfortunate, but people misrepresenting where I got stuff from kind of proves the meta theory of people are going to do this with right. stories. Yeah. Ari's had it done to a story. So it's actually happening real time in reviews and people. And I'm like, you're kind of proving my point, which is great. Right. I kind of wish you would like, oh, it. you ripped off but, the name of the wind, but it's just like, where do you think the name of the wind was inspired from history? And a lot of that, oh, yes. And yeah. blah, blah, blah. And it's like, fuck so <laughs> there's something called the cosmic egg theory, which a lot of cultures have. And in, in mine, I, and I sucks I have to give up the mythology to explain this, but it's also why I wrote it. So I also use a cosmic egg. I don't know if I call it the cosmic egg. I think I called it like a shining pearl and I was a little bit more poetic, but it's the world egg. It's a proto-Indo-European creation mythological motif. The birth of the universe or the creator deity comes from first an egg. It, it, it makes sense. Very hatchy. And interestingly enough, and I can actually quote um, specifics too um, of how similar these are. In the Rig Veda, which is South Asian, I think it's 10.129, there is a line that goes, um, there was neither non-existence and existence. There was neither the realm of space nor the sky, which is beyond. There was neither death nor immortality then. There was no distinguishing sign of night or day. This is setting up that that part of the cosmogony. And then in for the German and Norse, there's an old Wesselburn prayer, which goes, neither earth there was nor sky above, neither tree nor hill, nor stars there were nor star in the sun. No moon or light there was, nor the salty sheep. There was nothing, nothing in end nor limit, uh, nothing in stillness and silence. It's very similar to the South Asian one. Um, and this continues with the idea of the first men, um, who I believe the original in the... Proto-Indo-Europeans was Manus and Yimo. They were their twin brothers of creation. And then in South Asian, we have Manu, and then we have the Lord of the Underworld later, uh, Yama, which is derived from Yimo. Uh, we have the Astavan king, um, or oh, was the Avestan king, I'm sorry, did not mean to get that wrong, uh, who's also the king of hell, who's Yima. And then interestingly enough, the Norse uh, sacrificial twin is Ymir, whose body was destroyed to make the world. And then the story of Manus and Nemo usually is that it's a brother self-sacrifice story where one brother is killed for, for the greater good or creation. And you can argue that. And it's also very interestingly saying with Cain and Abel. Um, and the other one, which is a creation story of Rome, is Romulus and Remus. And if you trace back the actual linguistic stuff, Remus comes from Nemo and Romulus is from Manus. It doesn't sound like it, but it does. Yeah. Um, and there's actual entire etymology proving that. And this was very core to Tales of Tremaine. When I have certain myths and nesting stories, depending on what you're familiar with, you'll only think it exists from a certain myth, which is good. But I'm hoping it prompts conversation to realize that, like, like the hero's journey, so much of this is across cultures, which is both beautiful because this was supposed to be a literal love letter to all storytelling across cultures. Exactly. Because I'm a mythology nerd, I am not a fan of, and we see it's social media, but like, and I don't, none of us are like this, but I hate just the idea of pigeonholing people by nationality by whatever stories are so traded across the world and cultures and food which i also focus a lot on here in food um if you study food history you'll see how much food has been traded around the world to inspire food too like we are not homogenous beings that can be nationalized and reduced down to culture we've all come from somewhere i mean the proto-indo-europeans came from somewhere we just can't trace it back that far but they spread out and weirdly their myths spawned 
very different cultures. Um, this is a fascinating thing because I play with language in the first binding, which also sort of gets into the hero's journey and stories too, how language is shared and involved. But the closest cognate to Sanskrit, uh, the South Asian oldest language that is still spoken to this day in the world, is Lithuanian. It's an Eastern European language that you would not associate with that, but you can look it up. Um, because both share a Proto-Indo-European root. If you go to speak traditional Sanskrit to someone who speaks like old school Lithuanian, they will be able to understand a lot of Sanskrit, <laughs> which is a completely different language in the way it's written. But speaking wise, the words and pronunciations are similar in most cases. Um, and you're like, well, that's weird. These are like Eastern European white people. Um, it's like, well, where did North Indians and South Asians come from too? They originally mm -hmm. all came from the same proto-group that over time developed differently and carried certain same myths. The myths are the same, but we all have roots and that's and we talked about the cultural aspects i'm doing with the first binding too with like tinkers and where certain myths and people come from too the whole idea is stories are universal so are people there's a lot more love and interplay and interconnectedness than you real on that hopefully the more people read and read book two and then we'll re go back and reread book one it changes and there's more layers to peel back and that was what i wanted to do with the hero's journey i wanted to almost like defrock it go like here it is on the surface <laughs> here's more of what made it up and the more you read you realize here's more of what made it up and here's more of what made it up and here's what more of made it up as i use certain beats and tropes i right. can give this away i believe I, I, if you haven't read the book i'm sorry but so there's a certain climax scene that happens in the past story um which involves a serpent mythology motif as well i'll say and it's very analogous to the serpent dragon slaying myths i talked about now how i subverted it is what happens with the serpent and the main character's deeds and maybe felling the serpent aren't traditional but it's a water-associated serpent that comes out of a, a waterbed. Um, and there have been claims like, oh, this happens in other books. I'm like, yes, it does. Because uh, this is quite literally the idea of slaying the dragon. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and I'm doing that for a reason. And how I change is what happens with the dragon and everything else. Um, but it's like the entire thing is supposed to be a meta-analysis of, of comparative storytelling and shared storytelling. And Ari's literally quite living up to that by manipulating himself with the story as we see and then how quickly others do it because that is quite literally what happens with stories as we talked about with rumors racism novels today celebrity got whatever like humans are natural storytellers by the way you you exacerbate and you emphasize your day like oh this fucking you know like we use idioms and we exaggerate <laughs> things like oh god i was like this fucking killed me at work today no it literally didn't but <laughs> right. it's just part of our yeah, speech yeah. it's so yeah. naturalized yeah we we write to you know embolden our emotions we we speak to share stuff we we very quickly do that telephone game i don't know like I, i've got married friends who god dang their their marriage group like gossip is, is terrifying like, it's like maybe i shouldn't get married because it's a lot of bitching about other married people i'm like i'm pretty sure the situation is not as bad as you think but um, okay then. Yeah. <laughs> I like what you bring up about language though. Cause it's like the ways in which humans use language is so fluid, which is why it was interesting to me that you rightly so kind of framed Campbell's analysis of the hero's journey as a reductionist exercise. Yeah. Um, why do you think, why do you think Campbell's analysis was was one that obviously is like a way for modern 20th century people to kind of like understand the history of it. But why do you think that's the one? Because when people mention the hero's journey, so much of it comes back to Campbell. Why do you think that's one that really stuck? Watched on, yeah. I, I think yeah. I think at that time too, when he was codifying it, he was able to, and this is gonna sound 
maybe bad, and I don't I don't intend it this way, but there was a lot of media that was blowing up, and he could reference those medias because it did happen to follow the hero's journey, and they resonated. I mean, one of the things he got most famous for was a ninety was a nineties or late eighties talk uh, with the professor, I believe, or a talk show host interviewing it. It's called the Power of Myth. Um, I do know this exact name of the series. I just don't remember when it happened. And they were at Skywalker Ranch and Studios talking about the power of Star Wars and how it followed these myths. Yeah. It's because some of the most legendary pop culture things at that time coincided with his research. And he could leverage that. And, and he should have in a good way. Talk about – because we were birthing new myths. We always are. Yeah. Uh, Marvel has become the new hero's journey exactly. in a way. Um, certain superhero, if you reduce their stories – and again, this is the problem. You have to reduce it, but you can make it fit the hero's journey. There are certain calls – that follow those stories and they become larger than life it's more like and that's all the original heroes really were i mean odysseus was your spider-man or your batman back in the day that is the point he's literally the proto-hero like the uber man it's just different societal morals and cultural values that he might have had that differ from peter parker um but when you can leverage this theory and tie it in it helps people understand the love for a societal love for what they have like you know you have the debates of why people love marvel and then people who are burned out on marvel I yeah. mean, they're both valid, but or why why DC why DC movies haven't been as successful as Marvel? Hey, yeah, they're not exactly. It, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But if you look at it too, interesting enough, a lot of it is also about character resonance. You know, people aren't connecting with certain iterations of the characters. Uh, the biggest complaints that a lot of people might have is like the version of Batman they saw wasn't the one that they truly identify with, or Superman was right. too dark and emo, or the Superman that they identify with. And it goes back to that. Then again, we're back at the quest for individualism and what you tie to your your hero, your savior, your what do you want to accomplish? What do you want to grow and go through your your individualistic hero's journey? And maybe Superman was your north star, and seeing a different right. version of that is not true to your journey, right. your love, and your emotional resonance. It's kind of like and, it's kind of like the shifting nature of these stories over time in history mm-hmm. and. And, 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 uh, locale as well, where it's like, like I was saying earlier, like the storyteller as the person who can kind of like read the audience and read the culture and read the community and, and Absolutely. that kind of thing and basically being like shaping it to mm-hmm. better fit what they imagine these people will latch on to most strongly. Absolutely. And therefore it's like, oh, like Spider-Man three's like emo Spider-Man was not my jam. <laughs> and it's just like. Mm-hmm that's very different from the first Spider-Man movie or, or yeah, what have you. Well, and it's basically like, like Marvel uh, kind of like steering away from what you latch on to as your ideal version of that mm-hmm. particular hero. Even a when great it's example static of- though, I was going to say Star Wars movies, right? Like people fucking hated the prequel movies. I remember I was, I'm old that's enough I grew up on, to have so. been there. Yeah. Well, and I was a kid when they came out too. Right. And yeah, I, yeah. I thought they were dope, but the older people, fucking hated them and now those same people the same population i guess i don't know if it's the same exact individuals but they are bitching about the sequels and they love the prequels how great are the prequels right and i think there's something to do with framing um even if it's the same story but just the the context right and nostalgia too like nostalgia plays into it nostalgia is a power yeah Um, a great example of live storytellers doing this are comedians if you watch stand-up comedians the way they'll tailor their act and certain localized jokes to better resonate with an audience Mm. now we're going away from the hero's journey but the again the idea of mutable stories and trying to create a certain resonance and bring in that personalized individuality of why people resonate with it so if you're a really great comedian and you go to texas you're probably going to bring in some kind of joke local only texans will get uh cat williams did this and I, I forgot what the special was but it wasn't that long ago a year or two he's in florida and he brings up a lot of florida cultural notes and a lot of florida jokes into that specific act the rest is a larger act that appeal to hopefully everybody but that's how he ingratiates it right there and he's like now he has the emotional resonance he has the local 
radicalized draw, which goes back to how the hero's journey spread and, you know, created this whole system because of localized myths being incorporated, uh, incorporated into larger myths that people loved and they wanted to take and subsume and bring into their culture or happen to spring up out of older cultures at different points at the same time. Right. Yeah. So you've talked a little bit about some, I mean, we've talked a lot about Campbell. You've talked a little bit about like some, some criticisms of Campbell with it being sort of reductionist or criticism with a lowercase C, right? Um, mm-hmm. I'm curious about, well, right, because it's not like we're saying no, it sucks. It's, it's just, you know, yeah. 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 Um, right. <laughs> I'm curious what some of your take on some of the other criticisms of Campbell's take. So um, one that I've heard a lot is that it's, it's very male-centric. Um, Absolutely. So yeah. I'm just curious about your take on that. It is and it isn't interestingly enough because if you actually look at the the actual breakdown of the hero's journey, it historically has been represented by men as the characters, but nowhere in the hero's journey does it have to be a man's journey. Nothing right. is gendered in the actual mm-hmm. achievements because yep. again, it comes from Jung. It's a it's a quest for individuality. And I believe Jung once sum- summarized it as only one who has risked to fight with the dragon and is not overcome by it wins the hoard, the treasure hard to attain, and that can be anything. Um, and we do know that um, later on, a heroine's journey was codified and created out of both Young and uh, Campbell's stories. And I'm not trying to say this to be insensitive, but I believe that it was just a history of, sadly, patriarchal stories that made you think it has to be that. Because we historically have had such a male-dominated culture of male heroes. But technically, what the hero's journey does does not have to be a man. You can absolutely write a female character doing that because it is a quest for individuality. And that's where the problem comes from how it can be reduced because there are larger myths that make this up. And a woman can easily fulfill those. In fact, we have a history of powerful women characters that don't get talked about. Um, this is a comparative myth study I talked about where um, everyone knows about the Orpheus and Eurydice story. There's two South Asian versions just of South Asia alone doing it. And one is Savitri and Satvian. And Savitri is a female. And she goes to the underworld, to the Lord of the Dead, to win her husband, uh, the, the man she loves back. And she tricks essentially the devil. He's not really the devil. He's the Lord of the Underworld. But he's cast in that right, light. Right. She outwits him and gets her husband back. She succeeds where Orpheus and Eurydice is a tragedy, and she and she wins. There's a history of powerful women. There's Brynhildr's Ride Through Hell, where she falls in love with Sigurd, and he, her, and she is sort of instrumental in his downfall. And to try to get her lover back or reunite with him, she goes through hell. And all throughout hell, her love is tested. And she doesn't succeed in bringing him back, but instead, in some iterations, she stays there in hell and reunites with her lover still. She's there with him. And again, this is Norse hell, so it's not necessarily a place of punishment. Um, it's kind of like Greek hell. It's a place of contemplation or just the afterworld. You don't go there to be suffered and tortured. Um, now, she faced some horrible stuff, but again, it wasn't that. But the, the, the idea in larger narratives and epics, where the hero's journey pulled its beats and structures from, had a history of powerful women. Unfortunately, in society, I don't know why we've removed them. I wish I had that answer. Um, one of the most famous mythological beats uh, that can be in the hero's journey, it's not talked about, but it's used in hero's journey stories, is the idea of the temptress, um, which unfortunately usually reduces a powerful female character into like a sex-lusty character. Um, the Odyssey does this with both Calypso and Circe. That they have their own individual stories and they're both powerful women reduced down to that. Um, and unfortunately, it happens a lot of other cultures. Even the story of the Buddha, at one point, he's tempted by the daughter of a demon and she she's a seductress meant to tempt him. Um, I, there are a lot of other examples. I'm just trying to think of like how I can show where it's been subverted positive. Oh, Tolkien. Tolkien did this wonderfully where he used the temptress archetype, but it was positive and it did not reduce a woman down to this. And here's how he did it. Um, and again, I'll use the the present day films because I, I know it's widely accessible. I don't expect everyone to have read the books yeah. because mm-hmm. they can be very dense. Um, but in this case, 
That's when Frodo is in uh, Galadriel's domain, mm-hmm. and he just looked at the font, which is another mythological beat, by the way. Um, a domain like this surrounded, especially by trees, or one tree is called an Axis Mundi. It shows up in a lot of stories, like with a world tree or a forest, another realm of fairies. Um, and it's a place where the hero also usually can encounter a body of water with a woman, and you get a prophecy. And Frodo has this. He looks into the font, and he sees what could happen if the quest fails. He sees, you know, all the hobbits are chained, and the orcs are whipping them, and the shire's on fire. And Galadriel, who's sort of like, not really a maiden, but she serves the maiden at, the, at one point in the goddess archetype, um, tells him what happens if the quest should fail. And Frodo now is tempted. He could relieve his burden by giving her the ring. And for the first time, you know, it's not about sex or anything. She's tempted back, though. She's tempted to take the ring, which is very interesting because it does not reduce her down to that. It instead it changes her to this is power and not for power's sake. She could do something with it. And then she describes her temptations of what she could do with it. And she resists. She actually overcomes it. Both characters do. Um, and instead, it doesn't reduce a powerful goddess archetype down. And it fulfills another famous beat that does show up in Hero's Journey stories, which doesn't have to be. But it is, it's called uh, the Boon of the Goddess. So when the heroes leave, they are given gifts by Galadriel. In this case, they're given invisibility cloaks. They're given the cloaks of Lothlorien, which hide the hobbits. Now, if you look up invisibility cloaks, there is an entire history of comparative myth of legendary stories with invisibility cloaks, from King Arthur's company to the Thief of Baghdad to Norse mythology with heroes and everything. Um, there's, um, God, I'm trying to think. Uh, he brought Name of the Wind. Quoth gets a shadow cloak from a fairy queen. Harry Potter. Um, yeah. Harry Potter. Right, yeah. Um, also, I just realized that also fills the te- uh, the temptress role. Um, is it, It's book two where I believe Quoth has like 10 chapters of like fairy sex. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> with, with, the, with the powerful <laughs> goddess temptress character. Yeah. That also happens in the story of Thomas the Rhymer, where he's a famous bard and he um, goes into the fairy and Bounchikawamas with the fairy queen for a long time. <laughs> and this goes back into the Axis Monday thing I was talking about too, which is interestingly shared beat where he leaves with a piece of prophecy where his present day world, um, you know, it's like, oh, kings are going to die. There's famine and horrible stuff happening in the world. Um, and, and that's also, I believe, happening in the present day of, of, of uh, King Killer, where like everything's bad, like there's a war going on and um, a king has been killed and um, bad stuff happens after you get prophecy. But there's also the story of Tamlin or Tamlin or Tamlin the Great, um, who was a character who also, and in his case, he's kidnapped by the fairy queen and sort of he faces the temptation and she does to like seduce him. He resists. I believe he's rescued by his lover, which is a different subversion of it. But again, unfortunately, there are a history and archetypes of powerful female characters being reduced to that. Yeah. But I mean, it's like you mentioned just, earlier as well, like Calypso and Odysseus. Yeah. And There's Calyp- a lot of Calyp- Chicken Wow Wow. Calypso's Island is basically like fairy realm. Uh, and, Absolutely. And in the case of that story as well like absolutely and it goes back to also the other stuff of how stories share other beats magical cloaks at one point odysseus is given a cloak that prevents him from drowning and i believe he's also given a cloak that hides his appearance until he's really ready to reveal himself that one's given to both his son telemachus and him um but yeah it just goes back to the hero's journey and shared storytelling and, yeah. and all of this it's really it's really interesting though to, to know like obviously like most people would not be familiar with the ways in which women are represented in right. mythology uh, obviously some are at least from our modern perspectives uh not helpful representations whereas Absolutely. other whereas others are empowering and you mentioned the heroine's journey so that was like um a 1990 book by Maureen Murdoch called the heroine's journey and she was a mm-hmm. student of Campbell's and a Jungian psychotherapist so it's really interesting that mm-hmm. she has these two uh kind of 
influential pillars in terms Absolutely. of like in terms of like framing her her thinking regarding the hero's mm-hmm. journey and regarding her alternative i wouldn't even call it like a full-on critique because it is not right. destroying the it's hero's not. myth but it is mm-hmm. her interpretation of the hero's myth and applying it to women absolutely so for, from your perspective like why do you think it was inevitable and beneficial for a woman like murdoch you know much like the monomyth did for men to kind of frame mm-hmm. the contemporary woman's search for wholeness in a society that was you know it's kind of male dominated. Yeah, like male dominated yeah. and values mm-hmm. that are defined by masculine. I, uh, I powers. think it was inevitable and both super necessary because you touched on it. It's also the culture that tells this, right? Because mm-hmm. this is very Western culture, which is not a critique or indictment, but what a South Asian culture or Chinese or like Russian culture might take on their stories and their role of women are going to be different. And I'm not saying that's right or wrong, but this is through Western canon. So we have this bifurcated idea of women's roles, or at least at the time, unfortunately, in men's roles and their aspirations and everything. So her writing could only ever be a response to that, which makes perfect sense. But like, let's look at it today for us in 2023. We also now are talking about, you know, we have non-binary people. So like, which one are we going to tell them to use? Do they use the heroine's journey? Exactly. Like this or, the, 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 or do we talk about the idea of these are also quests for individuality that have unfortunately been relegated to gender, mm-hmm. but they were never supposed to originally be about that because the original hero's journey and even the heroine's journey don't have to be about that. Um, like we can go through, I, I can actually go through both real quick like the actual just break down the steps um so the hero's journey is the hero is introduced to the ordinary world um the wheel of time begins this way rands you know in his hobunk life in his hobunk village and everything's fine and he gets the call to adventure with moraine when he you know they realize that they're Taverin and something might be going on and a lot follow this but at no point has it said so far male or it has to be them and then you know you're reluctant or refuse to leave home which that's a normal want most people don't want to do that if you're safe you're encouraged by a mentor that you meet um you cross your first threshold and meet tests and allies and enemies and you go gallivanting about and you approach your innermost cave these are all still psychological yeah. they're not relegated to gender lack exactly. of gender however you want to identify um you get your ordeal and you get your uh, reward and you go back to the ordinary world and you cross that last threshold and experience a resurrection. This is like what Frodo realizes. He's no longer the same person. He can't go back to the Hobbit. And you return to the elixir or you leave. Um, a great psychological proof of this is the end of Return of the Jedi, where it's framed by Luke. Um, but when he's given the chance and temptation to kill Vader and take the Emperor's yeah. spot as right hand, mm-hmm. and he goes, no, I'm a Jedi like my father before me. It's that whole line that matters because the beginning with his mentor, he's introduced to the idea of his father was like this great fighter pilot who was mm-hmm. also the best Jedi Obi-Wan's ever trained and met, who was unfortunately killed by Vader. Luke's quest for his individual identity of who he is is not just a Jedi. It's not his father's son. It is all that is. I am a Jedi like my father before me. I am that Jedi. I am the, I am the idea that Anakin Skywalker was trying to be, that great yeah. Jedi. Um, and the, the, interesting thing, the interesting thing with, with someone like Vader is I like, I like how they kind of set that up as like uh, Vader killed my father. And it was like mm-hmm. he succumbed to the dragon. He succumbed to the dragon. The dragon yeah. killed the dragon killed Anakin, but Anakin absolutely. Anakin was killed, and Vader was formed. Exactly. In, in that no, moment. and that, that is it perfectly. And then with the heroine's journey, it's sort of an inversion. So instead of the hero, the ordinary world, it is the female character living in the illusion of the perfect world. Mm. Um, Cinderella, like you know. Um, Rapunzel. Uh, yeah. Rapunzel. And then it's the betrayal and the realization of that. And the coping strategies come apart and you're awakening, readying for your journey instead. You're not necessarily being pushed by a mentor, uh, but there's nothing saying you can't, but then this becomes a hero's journey. 
But again, I'm trying to show that this is mutable. It definitely is important and it serves a role. And many women have created amazing works of art with it. Um, Gail Carriger has written, I believe, also a, a book on the heroine's journey or like an outline structure guide. Um, and some of her works fall down. She's an amazing uh, author. I'm actually a huge fan of hers. I have her um, Parasol Protectorate series over there, which is not, I know something people would expect of me, but I also have a limited edition of one of them, like a signed numbered lettered. Um, and then you go to awakening and preparing for the journey. So your hopelessness is tempting to succumb to. Others tell her she can't do it. And they start trying to like, not necessarily beat her down, but keep her in her place. And she finds the tools on her own to like venture into that. And then there's like, instead of crossing the threshold, you have the descent or passing the gates of judgment. You're passing that, the, the societal things that keep a woman back from, from progressing or keep trying to keep her in her place or whatever. And she, then she reaches the eye of the storm where she has a small taste of success. It brings false security and she relaxes and maybe takes a chance she shouldn't take. Right. Um, and then things get worse. It's like death and all is lost and she fucks up. And then <laughs> the idea of the guiding spirit or an inversion of the spirit, uh, the mentor uh, comes in and they they help her accept who she is, embrace her her female aspects or her, her strengths and her femininity. And with that support, she she finds a way in her strength to go to the next place. There's the rebirth. Like, who are you? Um, as a person, who are you, who is the woman that is you? And you come into your fullest, best self and you face this fear with your courage and your brains and your compassion and you are fully realized like the best version of you, your identity, your world's child. But then this again goes back to, this is what all these stories and myths have always been about is quest for who are you and the individuality and the trials you need to face. And society through age has changed them, right? Um, again, the heroine's journey makes perfect sense and absolutely as a place because especially Western canon society has forced these roles on women and these ideas and this is an exact response to challenging those and finding that quest for your individuality so it is it is a perfect formula for that it makes a hundred percent perfect sense um but the thing i don't like about both in, in trying to word this carefully is not what they serve because they absolutely serve important roles but it's the idea that any of this has to be gendered or any of this has to be um it absolutely serves a point if that's what you want to write for the gender but again we're living in a time and place where we know we're not limited to that and at the end of the day, I also want to promote it. It's, it's whatever your individuality is. That's the greater message of what the point is. It is you finding your dragon, whatever that is. Um, and that's the problem when you reduce the idea of storytelling down into this is what it does. It absolutely serves a purpose. They're both amazing. But at the same time, it's like we have more than what you can just split up into people into two groups. And, yeah. and this will change racially and this will change culturally mm -hmm. now with different expectations. Um, you know, uh, what a woman in a different part of the world feels her societal struggles and differences are will not analog an American woman's, for example. So like her hero's journey is, or her heroine's journey is going to be different. It's why I'm always like, you shouldn't use these as outlines, but they do help you understand certain storytelling aspects of character truths and what your character might want to go through and evolve, not by literal beats, unless you want to do what I'm doing where I'm critiquing and doing a meta-analysis of them. But the idea of the challenges and ideas to test that character's growth and individuality and explore a world through that. Um, but it comes back to that. We're all individual people with all of our own backgrounds. And this journey allows us to put a character through that to find their best individual self, whatever that may be, or, or tragedy. Because um, the hero's journey can absolutely end on that, depending on what you want to do. Yeah. And all of these are mutable explorations, depending yeah. Yeah. on the individual. Well, and that's, mm -hmm. I feel like with the, the heroine's journey, um, you know, I think it, uh, like you said, it definitely has a place, but uh, especially for, for fantasy and, and sci-fi writers, it's like, 
the stories that I have written so far are not patriarchal societies because I'm building the world from the ground up and I just decided that I didn't want it to be mm-hmm. patriarchal. So mm-hmm. for, for, for my female characters, a lot of them fall more into the hero's journey than the heroine's journey exactly because, because they don't have the same societal struggles so. it's not the yeah. same so I, I do think that it's um i love the points that you're making about that it's it's very it's about it's an internal it's like, struggle it's an internal journey and how that expresses itself externally is dependent exactly. upon the factors in the world um and so yes i'm curious about your thoughts about you know ooh, i feel like you may have answered this already but i want to really I don't know. Put a put a button on it. <laughs> um, for do you, which do you Tied feel? Yeah, right. Which do you feel <laughs> is more important? Um, is it more impactful for a character to prove themselves to themselves, or to prove themselves to this society with which or within which they they exist? That's very interesting. Again, that's going to change based on where you're at. Um, and a great example of this is unfortunately Asian society is very societal approval heavy and this is and this is again what do you want to say to your readers because theoretically your character might also believe that i must prove myself to society and the greatest revolution to them going no i don't i need to prove myself to me which is very however asian stories a lot of times are the opposite where the character feels like no fuck the society i need to prove myself to me and then they go oh no i should sacrifice and serve society now that's some tradition of it but what do you want to be right there's no right or way wrong to do it it comes back to the story you're telling um being the fact that I am literally titled as the world's worst Asian, as it's in my bio, <laughs> I will argue that it is the question self described self described yes. But I have just offended every ancestor in my family by saying it should be all about your individualism and not sacrificing for society. But I come from a culture. America that has tainted that. you. Right? I was just going to say you've been <laughs> taken by capitalism. I mean, I mean, I'm I'm literally wearing a red, white, and blue like flannel. Like, yeah. It, 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 sorry, South Asia. I mean, I'm using the culture, and I, I love it. Cultural too, branding, like, right there, part. buddy. <laughs> no, I think that's a great point, though. That it is. It well, is very that is my identity, though. Dependent on the story I am that you're telling. A product of two worlds. Yeah. Like I will always be inherently too brown for the West. At, at some point, like I talked about, like yeah, um, I'm not white, and that is a reality. There's going to be different aspects I have to deal with in my life. I'm not 100 percent American. If I go somewhere, it's like, where are you from? At some point, I'll get the question of where are you really from? It's like from DC. Like, no, no, where are you really, really from? It's like from DC. DC. And I'm like, oh, where are your parents from? It's like, oh, that's what you meant, right? But that shouldn't matter because I'm American. I was yeah. born and raised here. Um, but at the same time, I'm I'm too Western for the East. Like we've talked about, people will always inherently question my South Asianness no matter what I do. Even if I can speak Hindi perfectly or Punjabi fluently, it doesn't matter um, what I grew up with. The fact that my mom taught me to make roti and bronta and everything, like when I was a teenager, that um, can cook Indian food and uh, I know all the cultural pop culture stuff because I still keep up with them. I watch the movies. Um, there's always going to be these checks and balances on that. But again, my my social compass and my social cultural development is being able to, I guess, this is maybe selfish, but I was able to cherry pick hopefully the best aspects of both cultures that I love. But that's a very individualistic choice. Um, and I was allowed to make that. So for me, my answer is probably going to be the individual. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, like like the same thing about the mutability of, of these frameworks of the hero's journey or the heroine's journey, Mm -hmm. whatever, honestly, like a lot of it comes down to what works best for you as an individual and a storyteller and, and the kind of story that you want to tell. But I wanted to get your take on like, what are some other ways that modern storytellers can approach the heroes or heroines journeys and in, in a way that respects 
the tradition going way, way back, going back into the mythology, going back into the deep history of these things, but at the same time feel at least fresh and unique and inclusive for that individual author in hopes that it will feel fresh and unique and inclusive for readers. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think one way to do it is familiarizing yourself with the actual requests that the hero's journey or heroine's journey make of you or your character. Because um, when you understand that, it's easier to subvert it. Because again, um, we've seen this thing called Save the Cat. Um, some people are familiar with it. It's an outlining uh, structure from screenwriting, which has eventually incorporated the hero's journey, and it creates an outline for you. The hero's journey was never supposed to be an outline. It was an internal compass guide. At no point did it say you must have these beats in your story. It's more like your hero is tested by this. He experiences this. It's very broad. It doesn't tell you the cave he must go into is a literal cave. It doesn't say the dragon it must be quite a literal dragon as we saw with Star Wars. So when you understand the psychological and internal requests it makes of you, you have a lot of freedom how to set that up. I'm choosing very specifically to toe a very literal line with what I'm doing, but I have a very different take because I'm trying to write a very different kind of story. Not everyone is a fucking nerd to the degree I am of all the aspects <laughs> I've talked about from comparative If anyone hasn't understood at this point, this is a very specific story. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but like, I am, I'm not doing something everybody should. This is something I very specifically love and I am doing like a PhD right. thesis my way through fiction with it. For me, my own entertainment. I was doing this indie like we talked about before, even Trad offered on it. This was for me. Um, but if you understand the internal, I guess, compass for the narrative, um, because all characters have to serve that too, I think it becomes a lot easier for you to go like, okay, well, if my hero has to have psychological tests, I can I can do these. There's no nothing saying it has to be done this one way. My character just needs to be tested to their emotional core and challenged, and then you decide what that core is and what you want to throw at them. Um, great example is like let's say the idea of temptation and your character like continuing to self-discover themselves dresden files does this episodically through every book harry is constantly tempted in different ways especially by the climaxes um, it's almost formulaic every book has a temptation for harry to take power to take a position of power to work for somebody in power to uh, gain a new physical power um jim has actually talked about this uh publicly on youtube but he didn't know originally what Harry was going to do in changes to save his daughter, but he had set up three different choices of temptation of power. Um, and this goes back to the quest for individuality, but at that point, Harry had three choices. He could take up Last Shield's coin, one of the fallen Denarian coins. He could use Kemler's Dark Hollow and become a dark god or sign on with Mab. And this is, again, who Harry Dresden chooses to be, his quest of individuality and, and, and choosing to face that temptation. He chose Mab because he, Harry, believes that Mab was a lesser evil. He, Harry, believes that he can... Uh, resist her influences, which is what future books have talked about. After he came into her service, you see that micro battle of him battling the mantle of the Winter Knight. Um, and it's a choice he's had to live with and he continues to develop his individuality. But the hero's journey is not a, you must do it this way or else. It's more, these are things your hero will experience to help better develop themselves and find out who they are and what their dragon is and what they need to overcome and their temptations. And that's very loose and broad. You get to decide so much of that from cultural aspects that you want to borrow from, depending on your background, beats and tropes you like, which have been used all throughout history. And there's great MacGuffins to pick from if you just like them. I mean, how many stories have a magic sword? Um, part of Rand coming into his identity and fulfilling his prophecy, literally, but also the prophecy of the hero's journey of him, his individuality becoming himself, as accepting himself as the dragon reborn. And in mm -hmm. book three, drawing calendar from the stone yep that's light excalibur exactly. that's quite literally what that yep. is yeah. he's literally in a place with a tier of stone and that's not a criticism of jordan it's that's how jordan decided to do this and that was what was important to him um 
and then that's just up to the reader and then the writer and because of my background with this i don't begrudge any writer you know choosing to do like the trope like like what jordan did to me and like oh I, I see what you did and i think that's beautiful but that's because i'm a certain kind of weird nerd but the hero's journey is just how do you want to play with it um just if you want to use it familiarize yourself with the the eight to twelve steps depending on which version you're looking at because some break it down to a little bit more micro but they're very broad mm-hmm. like, you are allowed a lot of freedom with it oh heck yeah yeah, yeah. This has been so incredible, and I feel like we have gotten so much, like, just incredible, so many incredible insights um, from you, from all the incredible research I'm sure you've done. And like, it's Say incredible great. one more time, MJ. Incredible! <laughs> no, but it has Fucking been, right? Incredible. It's like, I, yeah. I feel like I have learned so much, and I felt like I knew quite a bit about the monomyth coming into this. Um, and I, I have. I've learned a whole bunch, which is great. And I think we should have a little fun now, though. After being all serious, <laughs> let's get let's get back into into all the fuck talk that we yeah, were talking about. Right. Last I feel like episode. we should have a little fun. Um, so no, I just I and you've given so many great examples of you know from modern media and films and and TV and comics and all of that. I just want to know what is some of your favorites. Like if you had to pick some of your favorite iterations in modern media of the hero's journey, if you had to pick a couple. Oh God! What makes the cut? <laughs> it's always Star Wars is unfair to me though because like I've talked always about it was my introduction to fiction, and it's like it's so perfect with it. I could talk about just I, I could teach I've actually taught um like three act and five act structure stuff using different Star Wars books and novels and uh and uh, the actual original trilogy. Um, obviously it's living up to the monomyth. I could just like because it's how I taught myself. Once yeah. I learned it, I went back well, and watched Star Wars. It fits it so well. Yeah, I know, mm-hmm. I know it does. It's just, it, it, but it feels like just a trite answer. Um, you know, I just I don't know. It's not trite it's, if it's your favorite. I ask you, this is your journey, Ronnie. This is your yeah. journey. <laughs> you are a strong individual. This is what you like. I love it. I mean, it. there's aspects of Marvel movies that follow it. I mean, you can argue Tony Stark. Yeah. Um, because the way it starts is he's in his home environment. Um, the, the Iron Man movie is what I'll use. Um, Captain America you know, as well. Captain America, these guys are in their ordinary world and they've accepted life as it is. And quite literally, both have mentor figures in terms of Tony. It's when his life is finally upheaved and he's sort of start, starting to just see the consequences of what he does with weapons dealing. He's uh, got uh, the scientists in the cave yeah. who's sort of like giving him a reality check and he mm-hmm. realizes all the stuff that he's gone through. Yes, a literal cave. Like, Whoa, yeah, a literal yeah. cave. And he, he, he's like, okay, he's left his ordinary world behind. He's crossing the threshold and he becomes Iron Man without the name, but he makes the suit and he's like, he takes that first step and he comes back and his life is starting to change. He starts going through his trials and tribulations, making the first, the, the Mark One suit, the prototype that like has the freezing issue. And he's exploring himself and raising the idea of this threat now with the 10 rings. And he's like going out to stop terrorists and putting himself out there in mortal danger and developing Iron Man. And his eventual dragon is realizing the legacy he's left behind with Stark Industries having to change it, as well as um, Ironmonger, you know, his best friend realizing, like, I got I got to take this guy down because nobody else will. And he's double dealing and screwing the company. Um, and Captain America was the exact same formula. Um, it, it, he's a little bit more forward about trying to answer his call to adventure. But the biggest thing comes when he washes out and he's given that second chance, like, you know there's a way to get you in this program. They don't tell him at first, like, we're going like, to make you a super soldier, but he's like, there's we're a way. We're going to inject you and, with some shit. <laughs> yeah, and he's like, wow, I can still get in and be a soldier. Uh, okay. He yeah. takes it, goes through the training, and starts showing his character, and then he's he's chosen for the super soldier program, which is like that last step to really going through it. And for him, it's the his temptation in Conquer the Dragon is him deciding what Captain America, unfortunately, really has to be, which 
to stop Red Skull, giving up the idea of, you know, the, the Steve Rogers life with Peggy and the dance and seeing her again. His is, a, unfortunately, a choice of sacrifice. And he's sort of evolved, but come back full circle to the same kid who'll jump on the grenade. It is both an evolution and crystallization of an identity that he already was. And sort of going through the super social aspects of now I can do way more, but he's still Steve Rogers. He's just more Steve Rogers than ever in his case. And he makes the sacrifice play um, to save the world. And that, that was a similar thing with Wonder Woman and why that, that, that was like one of the few DC properties that I think clicked with more people than usual mm-hmm. it, yes, yeah. because agreed. it played more into, it played more into uh, the framework Obviously, it's like it didn't have to stick to the framework perfectly, but it's like mm-hmm. incorporating elements of the hero's journey and the heroine's journey at the same time. Yep. And really, uh, Black using Panther did that as Black well. Panther, yeah. exactly. T'Challa's quest of reconciling with his father's death, mm. learning what happened, learning that his father and the society wasn't perfect when he realized what happened sort of to his cousin and his uncle, and sort of defining like, what kind of Black Panther am I going to be by the end of this? Like, they're all the quests for individualism, but that doesn't necessarily mean also from society. But who really are you as an individual? What do you have to face to reach that point? And that's why they resonate because everyone has that question. That's just a life thing. Everyone's going to go through ages like, who the hell am I? What do I want? what do I have to do to get there? And it's just human. I feel like that's like the eternal question as individual humans is like, okay, obviously you fit into society in a certain way, but then it comes down to like, who am I? You know? And especially for people like us as writers, you're like, (laughs) we're like creating worlds and everything like that. And creating literally we, we, we start stories with like, who are these people? Who are right. these characters? What are these places? All these kind of questions. And then it's just like, here's the meta one. Who am I? <laughs> who are you as the writer within all that? Cause we talked about earlier about being mm-hmm. pigeonholed into careers yeah. and, and genres. Like, are you just a genre writer? Are you the guy who writes whatever for the money, which is fine. But is that who you really are? Like right. some people will do that and go like, oh, I was eating my soul. It's not me. And other people will write whatever they want. Going like, no, I just want to make money. And both are valid. But as the writer removed from even the fiction, you have a writerly human centric, larger personality than just you i've always said that people aren't nouns they're verbs like i'm not a writer i write but i also box i also work out i also read mythology i also paint you know i play guitar i I do a bunch of things because when you do that you reduce your identity down you identify as just a noun but as we've seen like you're not one thing you have to be so many things even in the course of the hero's journey luke becomes a pilot he becomes a friend uh he's a student he and becomes a brother he, as well. Becomes, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Like literally, but also to <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a weird way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 No, it's like a, he finds out he's a brother. No, I, I knew that's yeah. what you meant, but I decided to make it wholesome, Adrian. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, but that's the thing. You're never just one thing in any role. You are different things to different people. Right. And the best way to find that is to find out who you are. This became really weirdly wholesome, but that is the point. I love, of it. I love yeah. it though. It takes this whole that conversation is, yeah. very full circle. Yeah. yeah. It's a beautiful way to, to wrap this up, buddy. It really, really is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Everyone's on their own hero's journey. Just finding out who you are. Yeah. Embrace the journey. Embrace who you are. And I feel like more people, this is something we talked about with Paolini, but it's like, you know, when you embrace your passions and let your passions come out in your, in whatever you're doing, it doesn't have to be writing. It can be yeah. whatever expression best fits you. Just embrace those passions and people will respond to those passions. And Ronnie, like right. you said, it's like out of the 8 billion people in this world, how many of them are going to say like, wow, that thing that you wrote and put your passions into really clicks with me. Right. Well, and they can it. see that it's genuine. And I feel like that makes all the difference. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Mm-hmm. 
All right. Well, that is it for this mini masterclass in our two-parter with Ronnie. It has been an absolute pleasure. Brother. An incredible so time, if you yeah. will. Yeah. <laughs> Say incredible one more time. Time. I had to You're speak incredible. in one more time. <laughs> <laughs> Just one more time. Uh, as well for anyone who contributes to our Patreon at $10 or more a month, there'll be an exclusive reading by Ronnie from the first binding. So go check that out and support his work. It's incredible. Ronnie, where can people <laughs> find you on social media? Uh, I've got a Facebook page, which is just Facebook slash RR Verdi. And then if you comment there, I've got a Facebook group. I'm more than happy to invite you to. Uh, I'm most active on Twitter while I'm also on Instagram. And if you contact me through those places, I will be more than happy to give you a link to my Discord as well, which is where I'm most easily accessible. I might not be as active, but I always have Discord so I can keep up with fans and I have moderators that at least be able to share stuff I'm doing on other social media. It's probably the most kept up to date, but I am definitely most active on Twitter. Um, which is just at RR Verde, which is most places you can find me just that. Twitter is like Ronnie's ADHD outlet. It's yeah. beautiful. It's a hot <laughs> You're not wrong. We all I, everything, that, <laughs> everything you've heard me ramble about, I do entire massive threads on mythology all the time on Twitter. So it's oh, really gaining me more followers than shit posting. I yeah, thought man. that would be my way. Shit because this is fascinating shit, man. Yeah. We need more of it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. Well, you can also follow SFF Addicts on Instagram and Twitter at SFF Addicts Pod. And you can follow me at Adrian M. Gibson. MJ, where can people find you? Yeah, you can find me across all the main socials at MJ Coon Books. And uh, go pre-order Thick As Thieves. It's out on July 25th. Please do. And uh, <laughs> yeah, it's like heists and shit. Enjoy. Right. <laughs> I'm just going to put that. That's going to be my blurb on it. Heist and shit. Yeah. Adrian M. Gibson. Heist and shit. Enjoy. I love it. Thank you, everyone. And uh, keep reading, keep imagining, and we'll see you next time on SFF Addicts.